Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Elvis Costello has led a rich and varied life. He writes about a lot of it in his new memoir. Like, have you ever had Christmas with Johnny Cash? Elvis Costello did one time, thanks to his producer, Nick Lowe. I mean, Nick Lowe was the first person who was in a group who I could ask questions of. I'd been around musicians since I was a child, but I had no questions to ask my, my dad's colleagues. And, of course, then he became my producer when I was first making records. And then a couple of years into that, he married June Carter's daughter, Carlene, and next thing, the in-laws came for Christmas, and it, the in-laws were Johnny Cash and June Carter. You know, it was like... And we went to the door, and he was great. He just introduced himself the way he always did. Yeah, hello, I'm Johnny Cash. I couldn't believe he was saying it to me. They literally sang, drank, and were merry. It's Bullseye. I'll talk with Elvis Costello about his dad, who's a musician, too. We'll talk about his dream job if he hadn't gone into music, and also about how kind of got a reputation for being angry. He says it's something to do with the gap between his front teeth and also because he's kind of a shy guy. I was quite shy. I know it sounds a weird thing to say. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I didn't necessarily uh, feel I was naturally born to it. I didn't just want to write songs and stand at the back. Costello's new memoir is called Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink. Then I'll talk to Elizabeth Banks about playing Brian Wilson's future wife, Melinda Ledbetter, in the biopic Love and Mercy. It's a complicated love story. The real Melinda met Brian when he was at a very difficult point in his life. As a person, me, speaking for myself, getting involved with someone with that much baggage, it probably wouldn't have been for me, <laughs> you know, personally. Um, and so I had intellectual doubts. And then... Melinda reminded me that so much of first meetings are not intellectual. They're not in our minds, right? It's like pheromones fly and somebody speaks to you on a different level. (laughs) And um, that she felt he was unlike anyone else she'd ever met. We'll also talk about directing and producing Pitch Perfect 2. And yes, of course, this being my show... We will talk about the epic kissing scenes between her and Paul Rudd in the movie Wet Hot American Summer. And finally, I'll tell you what I love about something called Dad's Style. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Here's my guest, Elvis Costello, singing his song, Radio, Radio, with the attractions from 1978. David Lee Roth once said that music critics like Elvis Costello because he looks uh, like them. Not that again. <laughs> but it might be more that he... Th- it's a good quote. I mean, it, that is a... Is it? I don't that's know. That's a you solid piece of business. I don't know if it's true, 
but it's fun to I say. I don't know. You tell me. I'm, I'm not a writer. I'm a, I'm a lover, not a fighter. <laughs> David Lee Roth once said that music critics like what Elvis Costello say? because he looks like them. But is the next part of this. Yes. It might be more because he thinks like them or makes music the way they might like to. Have you seen David recently? No. He looks just like a, he looks just like a, a wizened old writer to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm, a, I'm only teasing you. I know. I've heard that one a few times. Through his career. <laughs> through his career, he's taken his favorite. Po- I'm going to power through this, Elvis. Yeah, I know you are. I can sense I'm not going to deflect you. No, not at all. I'm a professional pseudo-journalist. <laughs> through his I'm career. I'm proud to hear it. <laughs> he's taken his favorite pop sounds, the ones he grew up with, the ones he learned about as a young man, the ones he's come to know in middle age, and he's pushed them through his own vessel. He writes eloquently about this web of influence in his Sorry, memoir. can I stop you a sec? Can I stop yes. you for a second? Yes. Are we talking about David or me? Because this this reference to pushing things through my vessel, it <laughs> frankly sounds quite rude to me. I I don't know whether we should be saying this on NPR. I there's, think we may get letters. There's some things that are legal to say on the radio, and some things that aren't. Uh, I think I'm allowed to speak metaphorically. Um, uh, but if okay. you make it vulgar, we might have to bleep this whole exchange. I, I, I'm almost certain they're going to have to do that. I see them hovering over that big red button there in the in the control room. <laughs> if you're so, and that's keen... not a rude reference. I, I promise you that wasn't intent a double entendre. <laughs> uh, Costello writes eloquently about this web of influence in his new memoir, "Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink." The way that, and or by the way. You've ruined the entire tone of this introduction. This was a really, like, thoughtful introduction that I worked very hard on. And now it's just a series of jokes about private parts. And I, Well, that's what you know by now from reading this book, that that is really my entire aim <laughs> has been this. I think, I, no, I appreciate what you're saying. I, of course, the David Lee Roth, uh, that's, we've managed to mention David's name more often than mine. It's amazing. He's getting a lot of free publicity. Maybe he's got a book out as well. Um, I appreciate what you're saying. I'm, I'm teasing you. Uh, but I, you're quite right. This book is uh, trying to link up. I wasn't, as you can tell from reading even a few pages, it doesn't begin, I was born. And then I did this. And then I did that. And the laughter and the tears and my drug hell and then my conversion to some strange philosophy and, you know... Um, I tried to connect up emotionally the things that came to me, the fact that I, I happened to be born into a family for whom music was both vocation and occupation, both my parents, my grandfather before my father as well, a life of travel that leads you on adventures and in some cases misadventures, hence the title Unfaithful Music, memory being somewhat elusive um, or very vivid and then elusive. Unfortunately, both my father and grandmother, afflicted by dementia in, in their later years, made me fearful that I you know, would at some point in the future not be able to gather all of these experiences that I've been lucky to have and put them on a page so they could be read by, just say, take two people, my two eight-year-old boys. I mean, other people want to read it too, that's great. But in some senses, I, I was thinking about there's some time in the future where I'll wish that I wrote this down because it may not all join up in quite the same way. That's really what I was trying to say. Well, I think, I mean, had had I gotten to the end of the very beautiful introduction that I wrote, 
It was um, exquisite, by the way. Thank you very much. Um, I uh, I enjoyed your book very much as well. Um, you. you know, one of the musicians that you return to in this book again and again is your dad. Um, and it's how, you know, it's how you start the book. And it's, you know, it's a relationship that is really central to the book. Um, and I wonder, like, when you were a child before your dad stopped living with you, what did you think about his music? Well, I don't think you think a lot of things when you're that age. You know, I, I'm, like form opinions as comparative, like, is it this or is it that or is it better than this or better than that? I was very, I mean, I my mother tells me I went looking around the back of the television for my dad when I was really little more than an infant, you know, because I saw him on an early TV show. I, I I saw him, as I describe in the first chapter, from the balcony of a dance hall that was nearly deserted. It's hard to imagine a dance hall opening in a Saturday afternoon for 30 patrons and having a full dance band come out and play tunes for however long they played, you know. Uh, but they did in those days. <clears throat> so that was unusual. I would go in the morning uh, when I was off school on holiday and go to radio broadcast theaters in the center of London and watch musicians who, to my mind, were old men, but of course were men that were 20 years younger than I am now, reading the racing results and smoking cigarettes and waiting for the downbeat. And then a group of young men come in carrying their amplifiers and guitars, and that would be the beat group. In one case, I described the Hollies, uh, including Graham Nash, coming in from having driven overnight from the north of England so they could sing two songs on a guest slot on a, ra on a lunch lunchtime radio show. These are sort of, it's a pop world of music, and pop music doesn't really exist anymore. And this is within my lifetime. Admittedly, as old as I am, it, it's a surprise to me that things are quite so different. And of course, those images really stayed in my mind. And the transference from the mundane to the magical in the moment of performance was startling to me as a child, but I didn't, com I didn't have anything to compare it to. It was just what my father did for a living. Other dads came home and my dad went to work, you know. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the musician Elvis Costello. His new memoir is called Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink. I'm going to play a song with your father singing from the mid-1960s. Um, it's called Stop Your Playing Around. Hey, wow, where'd you find that? <laughs> you should be in my arms, loving me, stay up Atypical performance by Ross Martin, I have to say. You should, I should tell you that that was um, a B-side of a one or two, I guess you would call them Scar. You can be, sort of vaguely recognize that as Scar. You've got to understand when Bluebeat, as it was called in, in the early 60s, came in from Jamaica, it was another dance craze, just like the Twist and the Madison before it. And the Jealous Orchestra that my dad played with were a dance band, so the band leader you know, would say to the arranger, can we adapt these songs for our lineup, which was that of a typical dance band of the 1940s and 50s, you know, with saxophones and trumpets and trombones. He gave my dad the task of writing a few songs in this new style. 
And and hence there's kind of almost like a, a West Indian inflection in his voice there, just the same way as people. We learned all our singing from American records, and then latterly, you know, I guess people heard music from all over the world and just copied it. And that was the music. The, the different thing between England and America is, I think, although there are many people from the Caribbean in America, they all came at once, sort of as it were, into the into the culture and really transformed it with bringing music, calypso and and you know, scar and then later reggae. We have that really as our second line of music, you know, to pop, popular music. If you people of my age anyway, that's that was what we danced to at parties and in the early sixties. It's strange to think my dad got to make a record like that, you know, because it was it was it was actually trying to keep up with a new trend. I mean, I'm really just imagining what it must have been like for your dad who was, you know, by that point a, a grown adult who'd had a a healthy career and was singing in a band that was, you know, like a, like the Glenn Miller composed, like the Glenn Miller band or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Their theme song was actually in the mood. I mean, that's They borrowed the theme song from Glenn Miller. They played a lot of the Miller repertoire. One of my favorite recordings of my dad is actually, uh, I know why. And so do you. And at last, which were recorded for a, a tribute to Glenn Miller album that was made in the early sixties. Did he go like I'm literally imagining it, and I'm wondering like was someone in the band going dum da da dum da da dum, and did he go like ha? I guess so. I guess so. I know it doesn't seem very lightly, but he, you know, they had a sense of humor about these things, and I suppose they weren't always respectful about the numbers, but they also had the groups. They had the young groups of the day on as guests, so the show was attractive to younger listeners because they, if only they were tuning in to hear their pop favorites. And they would hear these renditions alongside the original groups. And that even sounds strange, I know, but that's how I came to see the Hollies. I got I, When I first met Graham Nash in 1979, we were introduced backstage at a gig in Manchester, and I said, we've met before, but you won't recognize me because I had short trousers on, you know. And, and I had met him at 10 uh, with my dad. And, you know, my dad was very kind. I, I suppose, as you say, he was a grown-up, you know, he wasn't a kid. Uh, but he liked a lot of the music that he was asked to sing. And a lot of the lads in those groups, they're either from Liverpool or from Manchester. They were northern lads. And I suppose he saw some parallel to the journey he'd taken going down to London in the early 50s to make his name in music. And there was some sort of sympathy that might not have been there otherwise. And he used to take my autograph book to the broadcast and come home with signatures. That, and I have printed them, you know, in the... There's an electric book uh, of this, you know, one of those e-books. And I added a, a gallery of pictures to as an appendix to that that edition with you know these these dedications and they're very they're poignant to read them now because they're these some of them are people like tom jones you know that are that are well known to this day others freddie garrity of freddie and the dreamers who not such a household name you know was your father a better singer than you are technically yes i mean the record you played didn't really show his voice to best effect but if you heard him singing uh at last you would definitely say that were you sort of aware of that when you were a kid? I, mean, I never thought when about I it because I, I was never going to be. I was never going to be a musician when I was a kid. I was. I was. I, I didn't. I wanted to be a coal man. I mean, you know what I mean? A coal man, a man that delivers coal, not a miner. And I wanted to be a coal man. Why did you want? Because I like a coal getting. Man? I like getting dirty, and I like the smell of it. Then, then, then the nuns tried to make me into a priest, and that didn't work out. So. I was stuck with being in rock and roll. You write in the book that you think that people um, 
took you as angry just because of the gap in your front teeth. That's certainly true. I've had lots of altercations with people of authority, <laughs> teachers, border guards, policemen, because if you can hear it now, I can hear it on the microphone, that the, the air that's expelled between the gap in somebody's teeth who's born like I was and didn't get their teeth straightened. It causes this sort of thing. It could be it could be a lisp, which could make you sound very gentle. Or if you express things emphatically, it makes you sound as if it's slightly more exaggerated than perhaps you sometimes mean. And I also have a loud voice, which means that people jump out their skin, you know. And uh, I'm obviously making a joke. I mean, hey, look at Jane Birkin. You know, she was just the most beguiling person when you saw pictures of her as a young woman and even... Today, she's extraordinary, and she has that. Ray Davis has it. Jerry Lewis has it. What links us all together is our teeth. Did you feel like you belonged to, uh, like, a scene or a group or a cohort? Like, in the beginning, did you think, oh, I can be a punk rocker and and that's who I'll be, or I can be a... Absolutely not, no. I, I actually don't think anybody thought like that. I think that was just something journalists made up because it was a way to kind of explain a phenomenon or make it seem like a phenomenon. And maybe some of the scene makers and managers wanted to have it seem like that. There was like a manifesto that you had to live up to. Those guys were, there's always that thing where, you know, managers will say something in a performance that might be more naive and have a talent that isn't quite formed or focused. So they say, well, you know, do this, you know, do this gimmicky thing and that will make them make, make you stand out. Well, in my case, it was a sort of absurd name. Other people, it was like spout this stuff off, and then they'll they'll pay attention to you, and and it gives you that moment of, you know, in the spotlight, and then it's what you do with it. But uh, I don't think anybody was thinking, yeah, I've got to be a punk, except like really untalented people. <laughs> you know, the people that wanted to be that usually weren't it ever. You know, I mean, like I said, uh, in one memory of seeing Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young play in '74. That day I felt when I heard Neil Young play Don't Be Denied, that had all the attitude of punk rock. But obviously musically it doesn't sound anything like what people think of as punk. Um, And, you know, you can hear records from the 1950s that just have the swagger that you associate with it. You can hear records from 1966 made in garage bands, you know, that have it. Uh, So all, all of these labels, they were just matters of convenience. Like, you know, they, I mean, over the history of recorded music, they've just used names to somewhat keep people down, keep them in, in boxes, you know, and, and this is this is this is classy music and, and we'll just think about when they recorded some of the greatest artists who've ever walked the earth and they they were they were obliged to be on things that were called race records, you know? I mean that's it's pretty extraordinary, but it's you know, it's it's in living memory, you know. One of the people that you met when you were still very young, relatively new to the music industry was Johnny Cash, right? Yeah, well, that was complete coincidence. You know, I know I would have no way to have met him in the circumstances. You know, could have never imagined. I mean, Nick Lowe was the first person who was in a group who I could have any, I could ask questions of. I'd been around musicians since I was a child, but I, I had no questions to ask my my dad's colleagues. I didn't ask my dad a lot of questions about music. He also didn't impose on me the learning of any music theory, uh, although his father had been a classically trained or military trained musician. Uh, so I had questions for Nick Lowe that were about songwriting. I can't even remember what they were now, you know. And, of course, then he became my producer when, when I was first making records. And then a couple of years into that, 
he married June Carter's daughter, Carlene, and next thing the in-laws came for Christmas, and it, the in-laws were Johnny Cash and June Carter. You know, it was like... And we were invited round for a recording session on the day after Christmas. I mean, it sounds absolutely fantastic, but it really happened, you know. And, of course, it was... To be in a confined space of a, of a you know, domestic setting in England with Johnny Cash was a bit unusual, you know. <laughs> It's not exactly so, where you so imagined. unbelievably like himself. It was, you know, it was like you don't really don't imagine exp- Johnny Cash like walking through a Victorian Christmas card, you know. Well, it was yeah, a little bit like that, you know, Christmas time, and and it's London. I mean, it's, you know, obviously the American idea of it is lots of urchins, you know, bare feet, <laughs> and you know, we're all huddling together around a around a brazier. You were but, a chimney you know, sweep at the time, right? I was. It was in my years as a chimney sweep, and I said, oh, "God bless you, Mister Cash. May I have a penny?" To pay for a roast goose. It wasn't, you know, it's like Dick Van Dyke, you know, Mary Poppins. Uh, but uh, no, I, you know, we went to the door and he was great. He just introduced himself the way he always did. You know, hello, I'm Johnny Cash. I couldn't believe he was saying it to me. And then, you know, there was a little, I, there was certainly some drinking going on with, uh, I described in the book, Johnny relating this night later on in a tribute to George Jones because the song we recorded was a song that George had written, a rare composition. And uh, Johnny Johnny reciting it was perhaps my, the best thing of all because, you know, he sort of said, well, I, was, I was with Elvis Costello and, and Nick Lowe and they were drinking a little bit. And, you know, and apparently we toasted to how great George was. And, I mean, this was later in the evening, perhaps after we had recorded this duet, which was vocally fairly ill-advised on my part, I have to say. You know, it was uh, to try and get in the ring with John but uh, they were really really uh, great people him and June and they had us up to their house when I went to when I dragged the attractions to Nashville to record country songs and uh, you know treated us like friends of the family which was again very head spinning and each time our paths crossed they they were always even and the same in that way and of course he ended up there was this strange period in 1986 where I was a Columbia Records recording artist and he wasn't. You know, uh, it was so unbelievable to me that they let him go. They let Miles Davis go the same year. I, I thought, you know, this is really backwards. And he took up a song of mine that was on his first record on his next recording on Mercury. And then I wrote him a song called Hidden Shame that he recorded on the second record. And... You know, I, I sent another song to him when he started recording again in the American recordings. It never got into the pile, but he knew I was thinking of him, you know. And uh, uh, John Carter Cash, his his uh, son, recently sent me a handwritten manuscript that, in Johnny's handwriting of my song. And that's how he learned songs. He would write them out longhand to look at the words. And I was pr- pretty great to receive that, you know. that's one of my, I have it in a frame. I'll finish my conversation with Elvis Costello after a break and talk to Elizabeth Banks. She's one of the stars of the film Love and Mercy, and she directed one of this year's biggest hits, Pitch Perfect 2. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. For music, games, puzzles, and trivia of all sorts right now, check out Ask Me Another. Play along with a Seinfeld-themed version of Taboo games of mysterious phenomena, and see what you know about some of the lesser-known puppets on Sesame Street. Ask Me Another is like trivia night, but a lot funnier. 
Play along now at npr.org slash podcasts. That's npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Jesse Thorne here. I'm taking Bullseye on the Road in November. It's our world tour of several American cities. Get your tickets now while you can. They're going fast. Come see me and William H. Macy and Barney Frank and Tavi Gevinson, John Hodgman, uh, the director of the Mutter Museum, who's going to do medical experiments on me, apparently, uh, Ray Suarez, Dan Deacon, so many more, music, comedy, and interviews at every tour stop. Go to bullseyetour.com to get your tickets. You will not want to miss this if you're in Philadelphia, Boston, New York City, Washington, D.C., or our own great city of Los Angeles, California. Bullseyetour.com to get tickets. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. My guest is the musician and now memoirist Elvis Costello. His new book is Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink. I want to play a song that you wrote for one of my favorite singers of all time, um, Solomon Burke, who recorded an album in the early 2000s. It, it was sort of a you know sort of a comeback album for him, although he had done very well on the road for decades and decades. Mm. Um, and it's called "The Judgment." Let's take a listen. When you're writing a song for somebody wh- whose style, whose instrument is as distinctive as somebody like Solomon Burke or Johnny Cash, are you thinking of it the way, say, a, a comedy writer might think about, you know, writing a joke for uh, for David Letterman or, or Roseanne Barr, uh, mm-hmm. thinking about trying to capture something about their particular voice? It's sort of different with with music I think um, <clears throat> at least for me it, it is I had dreams of people singing songs that came true uh, I had a dream of Dusty Springfield singing my song I had a dream of of Chet Baker singing my song a dream of Roy Orbison a dream of Johnny Cash even though I knew John a little bit you know I, I, I still didn't sort of really think he would pick up my song uh, not the first time anyway uh, with, with Solomon it was a little bit different because I'd had the experience of trying to write for some people and not got the measure of them right. I, I, I was trying to put too much into a song or didn't quite get the, the measurement right. And even with this one, there were a couple of tricks to this song musically that interrupted Solomon's flow. And Joe Henry, who produced this record, who's a friend of mine who also produced The River in Reverse and, and worked with Alain Toussaint, uh, he, he had me stand in the booth with Solomon because uh, I was at the recording session. And... Solomon, you know, was a, he, he was a, such a big personality, but in, in many ways he was like, there was something really wonderful about the way he, he, you know, invited you in. And he told me to sing it for him. 
because there was this timing of this one line. He he, he just kept every time he'd get ro- rolling with it, he'd come in the wrong place. And you know, I got to learn this. So you sing it. Can you imagine that having to stand in front of Solomon Burke and sing the song? You know, you could I could sort of sing it in my head. You know. And, um, and and then I did, and then of course then he learnt it, and he, he could hear what it was. Once he once he could watch me do it, he could, he got what the rhythm of it was, and then he sang it great, you know. And I mean Nick Lowell will tell the same story about staying up all night to imagine sing, writing the Beast in Me for Johnny Cash, and and then sort of the next day, you know, June ha- having heard about it, getting Nick to play it to Johnny, and so when it came out, of course it came out in this feeble little voice that wasn't like this big voice. It was like and the Beast in Me, you know. It was like because the dream we have of the singer is often, you know, we can't we can't animate like that, you know. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. My guest is the musician and now memoirist Elvis Costello. Here's a little bit of Allison from 1977's My Aim is True. Because I don't know if you are loving somebody. I only know it isn't mine. your life knows you by your birth name, Declan McManus? My mother, a handful of friends, a few people that knew me, you know, before I ever got into this world, you know, of, of music and adopted other names, you know. When you adopted the name, it was a name that was given to you by your manager, right? The second name was as a family name. Costello is, more correctly said, Costello. It's an Irish name. It's my great-grandmother, Elizabeth Costello. I'd adopted that because it was easier to say and shorter to write down. Um, and I, I'd used my initials for a while, DP, because my dad used to address me that way, which is an Irish convention too. Um, and then they handed me that, and it was like a dare. And, you know, my father had recorded under other aliases in the 1960s. He'd recorded cover records for for cash money, you know, uh, early in the morning sessions that were put out on cheap cover records where you get four titles from the hit parade on, a, on an EP, on an extended play vinyl record. And he went on, sometimes he'd be three or four aliases on one release. You know, he'd be uh, Hal Prince and the Layabouts or the Foresters singing Blowing in the Wind or Frank Bacon and the Baconeers. So you can appreciate that being Elvis Costello really was just like second nature to me. When you go into like a, like a Starbucks or whatever... Do you tell them your name is Elvis or Declan? I, I try to avoid doing that anyway. I, mean, <laughs> um, I usually don't tell them anything. Was there ever a point where it stopped feeling strange to be addressed by a, a made-up name? Well, nobody ever did call me that by that name anyway. Most of, Oddly enough, the thing of being called by my initials, which I know from childhood... It's sort of the way everybody's always addressed me in my camp, you know, as it were, in my my gang, whether it was a, the band or the management. It was always EC, so that was easier, you know, shorter. And uh, I don't ever recall that many people ever calling me by Elvis. You know? 
Well, I'm really grateful to you for taking the time to be on Bullseye. Thank you so much for Thank you. Thank you very much. Your most thoughtful questions. Thank you. Elvis Costello. His new memoir is called Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink. If you enjoyed my talk with him, you can find a longer cut of this on our podcast, which is at npr.org slash podcasts in iTunes or whatever software you use to listen to podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I read someone say that Elizabeth Banks always has the fire in her eyes. It's one of her greatest gifts as an actress, and from what I can tell, it comes from something real. Last year, when the director dropped out of a film she was producing, Banks didn't hesitate. She said she'd direct. Her first feature film as a director, Pitch Perfect 2, became one of the biggest comedy hits of all time. That fire has led her to more than 70 film roles, from the insane and hilarious Wet Hot American Summer to Sea Biscuit, The Hunger Games, and the recent Brian Wilson biopic Love and Mercy. In that film, Banks plays a car saleswoman who meets a middle-aged Wilson by chance, falls in love, and eventually tears him away from a psychiatrist who's controlling his life. Here's her meeting with Wilson in the film, who's played in this part of the movie by John Cusack. They're sitting together inside of a new Cadillac, and the conversation sort of takes an unexpected turn. You'll hear Wilson's bodyguard tapping on the window. Brian. Melinda. Hi. Come on, Brian. I want this car. The Fleetwood. No, no, yeah, but I want this car, okay? Uh, um, I want this car, this one we're sitting in. Oh, See, the floor model is... Yes, it's your favorite, right? You want... It's special, you understand? Can I have it? Sure. Okay. Yes. Hey. Hey. What's happening, guys? Hi, Gene. Hi. Hi. I'm uh, Dr. Eugene Landy. How are you? I'm uh, Brian's brother from another mother. <laughs> What's up? I want the blue fleet with Gene. Really? Yeah. You sure you don't want a Maserati? No offense. I'm taken. No. That one. Really? It's her favorite. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to expect a deal here. You know, something worth our while. Do you know who this man is? Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. Ah. Uh, <laughs> you didn't mention that. Well, because that stuff doesn't matter. That's ego stuff, you know? Are you kidding me? I, I love your music. I grew up on it. Thank you. That makes me feel really good, Melinda Ledbetter. <laughs> Elizabeth Banks, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. In a movie like this, you know, you've got two great actors who are playing Brian Wilson, and Brian Wilson has been a famous person since like 1961 or something. Mm-hmm. So they have some responsibility to represent this thing that we know and understand. You're playing a character who was also a producer on the film in real life. You have kind of part of the responsibility of representing someone's real life, but you don't get the extra points for doing an impression of that person, (laughs) which is not to take anything away from either Dana or Cusack's performance, both of which are amazing. And you also are so central in the story of his life. Like, you, your character is the turning point. Mm -hmm. And that is a lot to place on you as an actress. Like, your role in telling the story is huge. Well, geez, when you put it that way, maybe I never would have done it. (laughs) It was such a seductive idea, the notion of doing 
a Brian Wilson biopic in two different time periods with two different actors about a man whose life is very fragmented and who is, as a person, suffers from mental illness. You know, it's interesting because Brian became a recluse in his life. You know, no one, he sort of disappeared. He was like, um, no one knew where he went, you know, the lead the lead singer and the he the architect of the Beach Boys sort of disappeared. So I think all of us felt a little relief, as you say, that like no one really knew what he looked like then or what was happening or, you know, who he was hanging out with. Um, even though, of course, we feel a great responsibility to Brian, who's alive, and his wife, Melinda, who I play, who's alive and wonderful and a great friend to me now. And um, But also a responsibility to the legacy of the Beach Boys, because whatever we did, this movie became a part of that legacy because it was blessed by Brian and and his family. And we got invited into that. And that that was the craziest part of the whole thing, just sort of meeting them and hearing the stories and feeling like you were with rock royalty the whole time. I think that your character in this film could very easily have been a woman who comes into Brian Wilson's life, falls in love with him, and crusades on his behalf. That's right. The savior. Right. And (laughs) that seems to have been sort of, you know, one of the tricks that the film pulls off is not making the story that simple. That part of this part of this story is about your character trying to figure out what it's okay to do in this crazy world that you couldn't do never like how could you understand it? It's insane. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? I had a lot of conversations with Melinda about what was going on when they first met in her mind and, and what she knew, um, and when she knew it and um, because, look, I have, uh, as a person, me, speaking for myself, getting involved with someone with that much baggage, it probably wouldn't have been for me, <laughs> you know, personally. Um, and so I had intellectual doubts. And then Melinda reminded me that so much of first meetings are not intellectual. They're not in our minds, right? It's like pheromones fly and... Somebody speaks to you on a different level (laughs) and um, that she felt he was unlike anyone else she'd ever met. And what's also great is that Cusack and I, um, you know, we're not 22 and they weren't they were older when they met. They'd been around so many blocks and they'd had a lot of people in their lives. And so to to just come to someone at that point and have a. It's not so much a second chance, but like a final first chance at something deep and real with someone really meant something to both of them at that time in their lives. Were there any specific things that you heard from her that helped you understand this kind of weird circumstance besides just the magic of meeting someone at first? Because part of the story is about moving further away Mm -hmm. as much as it's about coming closer. That's right. Yeah, I mean, she despised Eugene Landy. <laughs> and um, and he, right, he was rightfully the, so. He was, the, he was the doctor who was... Uh, Manipulating. Uh, yeah, and in, in care of ca- Wilson. Yes, and, uh, yes. He was a qua- sort of a... He was a quack doctor. Uh, um, I, I don't... I mean, he's passed on now. 
but by all accounts was essentially a fraud and was using Brian. And, you know, the interesting thing about it is that if you talk to Brian, who's the loveliest man, he does not hold any grudges. And he really does say there was good and bad. You know, in other words, he wasn't he was not crazy about Eugene's care for him. I do believe Dr. Landy got him out of bed and got him healthier and eating and sort of out in the world again. You know, you you played the scene at the top of the movie when they went and bought a car and that's what Eugene was doing. Like, let's go out and spend your money and buy things and put you back into the world and see how you do. And but then he was also very controlling of of anything that Brian was doing and and um Melinda disliked him immensely immediately and really felt that he did not have Brian's best interests at heart. And, um, you know, when we're unfolding a film, you don't want, you know, you don't want Paul Giamatti who plays Eugene Landy in the movie to walk on to the scene just immediately where like the whole audience go, well, that guy's a bad guy. Something that I was thinking as I was watching, uh, love and mercy is that you've so often played kind of driven, directed characters and, um, you know, like on, on 30 Rock, you know, you're playing against Alec Baldwin, who's obviously the paragon of driven and directed <laughs> performers, right? Um, like he's he, he literally needed, the guy from equal. that scene in Glengarry Glen Ross, right? <laughs> yeah. And this is a character that is so different from that. I mean, obviously she has the, some of that sort of strength. You as a actor can't expect that what you're going to do is – push the other performer in the scene. They're going to push back Mm -hmm. and you're going to build something that way because of who Brian Wilson was. That's right. Melinda was vulnerable and, and she was, you know, in her late thirties when she met Brian, I mean, kids were sort of for her out of the question. Um, and you know, so she was a little bit broken too. And I, I brought up her distrust and dislike of Eugene because one of the pivots that the character for me that I felt I needed to make as the character in the movie and portraying all of this was was being vulnerable with Brian to and being open to loving him and him loving me and having this relationship with him, but then also having the drive to pull him out of that what he was stuck in essentially so that we could be together um so it it there be there just was this moment where I thought. I actually this character needs to be driven not just by her love for Brian but her by truly by wanting to win over Landy and that became a sort of simpler goal just beat Landy <laughs> um but that's still colored by there are a lot of moments in the film where your character is is asking like is it do I belong here like is this the place I need to I should be should I just should I just get walk away? Of, yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, and I, and there were many moments. You know, the other thing about this, um, the true story is that it played out over a, a longer period of time um, because because Landy really did keep Brian from Melinda. You know, they went to Hawaii for long periods of time, and um, so she she saw him so intermittently for a while there, but always every time they got back together, did feel this deep connection and did want to be together and and I, I think she felt he wa- he wanted help. He would say it but then back off of it. And it was, you know, there's a great scene in the film actually where she, where he says, um, I need you to leave but I don't want you to leave me. And that, that really encompassed a, the turmoil of what they went through for a long time 
I'll finish my conversation with Elizabeth Banks after a break. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. For music, games, puzzles, and trivia of all sorts right now, check out Ask Me Another. Play along with a Seinfeld-themed version of Taboo, games of mysterious phenomena, and see what you know about some of the lesser-known puppets on Sesame Street. Ask Me Another is like trivia night, but a lot funnier. Play along now at npr.org slash podcasts. That's npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Hello, I'm Taco, the elephant magician. Merle Highchurch here, the master of clerical magic. I'm Magnus Burnsides, the fighter. Did you guys like that? Did you, the listener, like that? You were just swept up in a world of high fantasy and magic where anything can happen and anything is possible. Hi, I'm Griffin McElroy, Dungeon Master for The Adventure Zone, a new podcast on Maximum Fun, in which magic and mystery intertwine for a very erotically charged role-playing experience. (laughs) You can catch it every other Thursday here on MaximumFun.org or iTunes. It's for Dungeons & Dragons, but with family. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the actor and director Elizabeth Banks, who stars in Love and Mercy, a biopic about Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys. It's out now on VOD and DVD. Banks has been in a bunch of movies and TV shows, including 30 Rock, Wet Hot American Summer, and The Hunger Games. She also directed Pitch Perfect 2. How'd you get this part? Oh, geez, I don't know. <laughs> um... I didn't really connect to the character until I met Melinda, and then I really felt like compelled to do it. <laughs> I just thought what part I felt you? so connected to at the actual Melinda that I thought if anyone else does this, I'll be so angry. What weren't you sure about before that? Um, it's a it's a look. The, it's a big bold idea. This movie is very bold. You know, I've I've been in some biopics before and played some real people a few times. And, you know, there's always this big responsibility. And, the, and we're always sort of, as artists, trying to figure out a way to tell. It's very hard to tell someone's whole life, you know, in two hours. And as you said at the beginning, so how do you distill um, someone's life into a compelling movie and really say something and this is about one of the great artists and we need to make a piece of art about him and it it was very daunting I'm a great challenge which is ultimately why I I wanted to be a part of it Um, but I definitely had I was seduced by the ideas but I thought it would be very difficult to pull off two time periods you know we deal with Brian's life in the 60s and then pick it up in the 80s Um, two actors playing him it just seemed a little a little insane which is exactly why it works <laughs> because our subject matter was a little touched himself and um and great and and i you know i i was frustrated on his behalf even just reading you know then going in and reading some of the the biographies and landy's writings which are madness and knowing that someone who had been left by their family, shamed, um, who was a great artist inside and who couldn't figure out, who wasn't being allowed to sort of fly free as an artist, that really touched me. The notion of just being someone who's not living their full potential, that's, that 
drives me crazy for anybody, whether you're a nine-year-old or, you know, a, or Caitlyn Jenner. <laughs> you know, like, everybody should have the right to fly free. You've had an extraordinarily successful acting career over the last 20 years or so. <laughs> You've been in a whole pile of things, including a whole pile of great things. You have infrequently been the star of films, and yeah. you're an actress, which means two things. One is the kind of simple actor's dilemma, which is that your uh, your job is collaborative and interpretive. And the other is that because of, um, you know, basically because of the sexism of the entertainment industry, um, it's a lot less common for an actress to get something really good to do than an actor. <laughs> Um, and I wonder if you have ever felt like you had to fight to make your real voice heard. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth, uh, let's let's talk about examples. Give me an example. Oh, I mean, not, you know, being frustrated by the work has definitely fueled me. You know, feeling that I was sort of... A, a, a bit of a wasted talent. Um, I don't know. It's hard to talk about, you know, because then you have to sort of say, well, I think I'm good. And that's hard to say because maybe not everybody agrees. But you're good enough at saying that I think I'm good to have uh, decided that you should direct a movie yeah. that, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars movie. <laughs> Yeah, well, I knew I could do. I mean, that, I think that's what it is. Is you sort of you you know jobs come across your desk all the time that you go. Well, I know I know how to do this. I I, I will do. I know what to do. I know exactly how to do that. You know, this is my job. I've been. It's the only job I've ever had is working in this entertainment industry, and um, you know, I I I came into it. I. Uh, you know, I remember in the beginning, it was like, well, you're pretty and funny, so you'll be fine. And then I was all right. I was kind of fine. <laughs> I work consistently, definitely because I'm pretty and funny. Um, and I remember being on a set at a certain point and um, someone kept coming up to me like, you look great. You look so great. And I was like, I, how, but am I compelling you? <laughs> I, I, all right, great. I'm glad I look good. Um, what else? Did you ever think when you were, you know, uh, when you are still relatively starting out, you know, the first five, ten years of your life, you ever have a meeting with an agent or manager or something like that where you said, uh, we got to make sure that I'm this kind of thing so that people can understand what I am and I can work? We got a brand? Uh, No, I – no, I didn't actually. I had some really great, interesting meetings. I I did have a meeting with someone who – I didn't think I had big enough boobs that I and didn't say outright get a job, but was basically like maybe get a boob job. Um, I mean, I left the meeting thinking like I'm pretty sure he just thinks I he won't represent me unless I get a boob. Wait, job. it was just like a first. This was like a first meeting. <laughs> yeah, it was a first meeting. It was an early really meeting with an agent. Um, yep, and then I had an agent who said straight up said to me. If you were a guy, I would represent you, but representing women is not worth the money. I won't make any money if I represent you. That was awesome. Um, so I have had some really great <laughs> meetings with people who I didn't, who I don't work with, luckily. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne.
I'm talking to the actor Elizabeth Banks, who stars in the Brian Wilson biopic Love and Mercy alongside John Cusack. I have a lot of friends in the comedy industry, a lot of whom are women. And I think irrespective of their feelings about like collegiate acapella <laughs> or like competition films uh, or like, you know, like uh, young adult pop entertainment films, like one of the things that they were so excited about when Pitch Perfect came out was like, hey, this is a fun movie about women. And sure, it has some of the things that people associate with fun movies about women. You know, uh, it's like re- relationship-driven, although it's, it's more of a sisterly relationship-driven mm-hmm. than it is romantically relationship-driven. But, like, they're just like, oh, yeah, and it's full of super funny jokes. <laughs> yeah. <this laughs> like, is... finally, women get to have just a movie full of super funny it's jokes. Really funny jokes. That's it. That must have been really fun. <laughs> like when you made this movie, I'm sure when you when uh, you were producing the first film, you imagined, you know, I, I can't I can't think that what your plan was was to have happen what had what happened. <laughs> no, which is that it became a huge hit. Like I think you were, yeah. you were probably hoping, oh, great, like maybe this movie will make forty million dollars and have a nice long tail on DVD or whatever. Um, I honestly, we but didn't. it must have been awesome when just people were like, "Oh, thanks for making that movie. I've been yeah. wanting to watch." Yeah. Well, it also look we 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 were sort of told like this is going to be a movie for teenage girls, which was great. Um, and they allowed us to walk the line jokes wise and make a PG thirteen, which was great, so that we could you know actually make funny, really funny jokes, um, and. Uh, and be kind of sexy and you know college and have so, and I think have so, also have sophisticated sophisticated right. jokes, not just dirty jokes. That's they're, right. That their jokes are cleverer than they need to be for a sixteen year old. That's no right. offense to sixteen year olds. <clears throat> no, well, really, what we you know we we wanted to make a movie that older kids thought was cool because cool flows down. So like, if something's cool to a twenty year old, then the sixteen year old and the twelve year old and the nine year old they're all on board because the twenty year old thought it was cool. So cool always flows down. Um, and we, I don't know, we just, honestly, we just had so much fun. Like we, we, we looked for what we thought would be really fun. And the singing, I think brings a real joy to the film, which is contagious. And people love singing and dancing. Everybody has a little bit of a rock star inside of them or that aspiration. And we all sing in the shower and in the car. And anybody who says they don't is lacking in joy. <laughs> Let's hear a clip from Pitch Perfect 2. So um, the Bellas, which is the collegiate acapella team at the center of the uh, presumably soon-to-be Pitch Perfect trilogy, <laughs> um, are at, at this singing competition. Um, they basically, they've they've completely lost their way. You'll be surprised to hear they had obstacles in their path. Yeah. They're at this, they're at this singing competition about halfway in. And they're like trying to pull out all the stops to get their mojo back. Oh, yeah. And so you will you will hear that. And then you will also hear uh, Elizabeth Banks, my guest, and uh, John Michael Higgins uh, as the competition judges slash uh, – by the way, thank you for including uh, the world of podcasting in your film <laughs> – slash acapella <laughs> podcasters. That's right. This is some exciting stuff. So sad. Yeah. Dream girl, this is real love. But you know oh. what they say about me. That girl is a problem. Girl is a problem. Girl is a problem. Hey, 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 hey,
lot going on up there. I think this sounds good. Honestly, my senses are overwhelmed here, John. You might want to tone down the theatrics. Let's hope there are no props. The props. This is more of a circus act than not the hell performance. Gail, it's as if the Barton Bellas just don't know who they are anymore. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the actor and director Elizabeth Banks, who stars in Love and Mercy, a biopic about Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys. It's out now on VOD and DVD. I feel like I could never uh sit down with Elizabeth Banks for this long and completely leave out Wet Hot American Summer. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, which is uh, a film that came out now 15-ish years ago uh, and recently a uh, multi-part Netflix limited series, mm-hmm. um, which is, uh, I mean... Sublime. It's, it's sublime. the best. It's, a, <laughs> it's totally the best. Um, and... Uh, your character is in the film is uh, sort of the hot chick, um, mm-hmm. and you uh, have a romance with the a sort of on again off again romance with the hot guy who's played by Paul Rudd, and uh, you know like any teen film, and I should say that like the, most of the people in the movie were well into their twenties, some in their thirties, playing Correct. these teenagers, playing, yeah, 15, and 16. now are playing them in their forties. Mm-hmm. Um, we're but, playing. We're playing three months younger. Yeah, <laughs> in the Netflix series. Um, but like, like any teen film, uh, you know, there's some making out, and then just you and Paul Rudd just opening your mouths as far as they will go, and just putting them on each other's faces. Yeah, pretty much like dislodge your jaw, like the snake in the Little Prince. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> Eating an elephant. Yeah. <laughs> No, it was like we, I think we just, I don't really remember, but it was like we were definitely going to just like eat each other's faces. Like eating (laughs) was more appropriate. Like how could I get his entire head in my mouth? I feel like if I had the chance to make out with Paul Rudd, and I say this as a, you know, I've committed the last 34 years of my life to heterosexuality. Sure. I'd hate to waste it, you know, putting my teeth on his ear, you know what I mean? Like (laughs) that guy's a dreamboat. (laughs) That was really fun. It almost felt more intimate to be like, and then my tongue was in your nostril, or you know, and then like our teeth were banging. Yeah, it's more a little slightly. I went there. It's a little more hardcore, actually. Elizabeth, thanks. I, I'm sure grateful you came in here. It was really great to get to talk to you. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks, Elizabeth Banks. She stars alongside John Cusack in the Brian Wilson biopic Love and Mercy which is available now on Blu-ray, DVD, and digital HD. She's also in the Hunger Games films, and she'll direct a follow-up to the smash hit Pitch Perfect 2 next year. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. There are a lot of great Japanese menswear magazines. Men's X is one of them. Go Out is a good one. There's Popeye. That's the magazine for city boys. It says that right on the cover. Uh, Lightning is a nice one, mostly vintage stuff in there. There's one called Oily Boy, which I swear to God I'm not making up. But if you live in the States, you can't just get these magazines at the mall, unless it's a Japanese mall. Actually, that's where I get them, a Japanese mall in San Francisco, in a huge Japanese bookstore called Kinokuniya. There's one in L.A. and one in New York, too. So 
once I'm done eating one of those waffles that's shaped like a fish with the bean paste inside, I head for the bookstore and I go straight for a magazine called Free and Easy. It's kind of like American style taken deeper than deep. I think in a way it takes an obsessive outsider's eye to really get it. Anyway, Free and Easy does theme issues. There's no hot chicks. There's no gadget reviews. Just some real in-depth stuff about, for example, Ivy League style or classic outdoor wear. Or, and this one is my favorite by a mile, something they call dad's style. Why do I love dad's style? Well, I'll start with this. It's not because I can read Japanese because I cannot. It's just that I'm a dad. Like, I don't just have kids. I do have kids. But I'm also a grown man. I'm not the dudes in American fashion magazines, and honestly, I've never really aspired to be one of them. Look, I wish LeBron James the best, but I don't really look up to him. I, I don't want to have a life that peaks at 26 or 27. I want to get better the more I do this. my dad role model supposed to be? Who are the family men on TV I'm supposed to admire? The overweight dolts on CBS sitcoms? The jerks in beer commercials? Anyway, back to dad's style. What's wonderful about dad's style is that it's a celebration of a mature masculinity. Not mature as a euphemism for elderly, just, you know, being a dang grown-up. It's about the pleasure of getting better with time. The editor of Free and Easy is named Minoru Onozato, and this is how he described Dad's style. And his English isn't perfect, but it's better than your Japanese. Dad's style means the man who has his own style, who spends his days immersed in his interests with full intellectual curiosity. He should also do his best for his professional career. This is the style we idealize. One of the greatest pleasures of living a considered life aesthetically speaking, is that taste develops. It grows and deepens and ripens with experience. In other words, if you give some time to beauty, it repays you with interest. And that's what you get from having been around the block. Almost anything we enjoy comes from some kind of connoisseurship. Great wine or a great record or a great sentence. That feeling of getting it right and appreciating what's right about it, those are grown-up pleasures. Knowing the world, knowing yourself. That's not for kids. That is for dads. And that is why I love dad style. Even if I can't read Japanese. At least there's a lot of pictures. That's my outshot. Come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abari and Exparello. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. Thanks this week to Neil Rauch at NPR New York for engineering help. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. 
And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture, hosted by comedian Guy Branham. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Pop Rocket. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 